Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt, and I'm a board-certified integrative and functional nutritionist. I live on the seacoast of New Hampshire and work with clients in my virtual practice all over the world through private consultations and online nutrition and functional medicine programs. Functional medicine nutrition is all about diving deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. And that's exactly what I tackle in this podcast. All things health, food, and nutrition. Unpacking current research and almost a decade of clinical experience. I love to bring experts and thought leaders to the table so we can all learn together. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive in. Hey, you guys. So happy to be back here. Another week of the pod. Um, Hope you're all doing well. Hanging in there. This week, I'm going to do something a little bit different for the podcast, and I'm sharing with you something that I recorded back in January as part of the Carb Compatibility Project. So as um, part of that four-week nutrition program is weekly Q&A sessions. Um, I host them in our private Facebook group. And so ahead of time, you give me all your questions, what you're experiencing as you move through the program, or just generalized you know, nutrition and health questions. And I answer them each and every week in a live video. The live video is saved. It's recorded so you can watch it anytime. This particular one that I'm going to share was a little bit longer. Now we did have a pretty big group in January. So there was a lot more questions and that particular group of people really brought the heat. There was tons of great questions and there was really cool, fun interaction in that particular group. Um, So this one is a little bit longer and I'm sharing it here as a podcast episode because some of the things that I answered were really big universal concepts that apply beyond just the context of the CCP. Um, I wanted to share them here because I think we can continue to hear these messages over and over again. I think we have to. I think we have to kind of bathe ourselves in some of the things that I'm about to say on this this recording. Um, I also wanted to share this as a way to share with you guys what it's like to be part of that group, what it's like to do the CCP, Um, especially if you get hung up with something. There's a lot of different nutrition programs out there that you can do, that you can purchase, or you could, you know, they're free. And I, I see, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now, online programs. What I see is that if you hit an issue, a roadblock or whatever, you don't have any place to put those questions. You're like, uh, I'm, I'm struggling here. Is this normal? Like, do I kind of push through this or do I switch gears? How do I know what's appropriate to do? And so one of the, the, the values of this program is being able to ask me those questions as issues come up for you in real time. You do get access to me, a nutritionist who's, like I said, been doing this for 10 years. So I have some pretty good insight, I like to think. Um, And I just feel like that's such a a nice bonus of doing a nutrition program. Now, obviously the questions are going to change week to week, program to program. So every Q&A is totally different. We cover different material as it comes up. But this particular one is kind of a good um, example of the type of stuff that we unpack. And... um, So in this recording, I'm going to, I kind of interweave diet culture and dismantling diet culture with how to stay on a structured eating plan, right? Because um, like, how do you say, I don't want to diet anymore, but then still eat within the construct of an eating, eating plan, right? That can be a little bit tricky. You'll hear my responses about using common sense with a food program. I think so often that common sense piece gets lost. It just goes out the window when we start to blindly follow food rules. And um, my programs are not about that. Um, And if you're interested in using the Carb Compatibility Project as a weight loss tool, make sure that you stay to the end because that's where I talk about 
weight loss on this program and what to expect, even if you're not doing the program, you know, what you can expect when you're attempting a weight loss journey. Um, and you can, you know, for those of you guys, I, I, who are thinking about utilizing this as a weight loss program, you absolutely can if you have significant weight to lose, especially if you're in the whole higher blood sugar, um, you know, insulin resistance, high insulin, um, picture if you're if you tend to carry a lot of weight around your middle and this I see this more and more often with perimenopausal and postmenopausal women in uh, your hormone revival this particular round. I've had a lot of women in that camp and they've got those high blood sugars, the, those high A1Cs, that high insulin, the insulin resistance. And so my suggestion to these women is that we really do have to pay attention to carbohydrate intake, to sugar intake, and dial it in, like what's appropriate for you. So obviously the question becomes, how many carbs do I need, right? That's an obvious question to that recommendation that I'm giving out. My answer is always going to be the same. I can't tell you that. I really can't. Um, In fact, anyone that's telling you that or prescribing you an exact amount of carb carbohydrates per day really should raise some red flags. I've said this before here on the show. I'll keep saying it. Carbohydrate intake is so individualized that you really do need to tinker around to figure out what's appropriate for you. And any of the good guys out there that are worth their weight will tell you exactly that. It really depends. And that's why I created this program, the CCP. So you have a framework to work within to determine that for yourself. The process really does work. Um, I know I talk a lot about low blood sugar on this podcast, um, but we also have, you know, the, the pendulum swing in the other direction where folks are dealing with a lot of high blood sugar issues. In fact, um, somebody from January's group just shared this with me. Um, she was able to break the sugar addiction, which is a relief. She's lost half a pound of weight per week by staying on week three of the carb compatibility project. So that she dialed it in. She figured out week three was her sweet spot and she's just been cranking along, cruising along on that and doing really well with it. So super individualized. Um, One last thing before I let you guys tune in. There is, towards the beginning of the recording, I say something about, um, I touch upon my history with disordered eating, and I say something like, um, I was able to you know, heal myself after 13 year struggle with disordered eating and not many people can do that. And when I was listening to the playback, I was like, Ooh, that kind of came across as a little bit weird. So I want to explain what I meant by that. It's not like, Oh, I'm so great. I can do this big thing that nobody else can do. At the time, um, in January, I was dealing with some health stuff and I, I, I've sort of teased it out here, but I've never really given the full back story uh, on the podcast, but I, I, I was dealing with a really big health scare. And so I went to a woman named Nadine Wheeler. Um, I used to see her back in the day for um, SI joint problems. I went back to her for um, hypnotherapy. And on our first meeting, she totally remembered me and she remembered my whole health history, which just felt so good because how many practitioners remember your whole health history? And something she said to me, she was like, you struggled for with eating disorders for a very long time and you've completely healed and recovered. Not many people have the ability to do that. Not many people can say that. And the reason she said that, and it really, I fixated on that. It became like a mantra for me because her, the whole point in her telling me that was like, you can heal that. You can heal anything. You can, you got this. You can, you can fix this. You can heal this. No problem. And so it really became my internal dialogue. Like I use that as a way to bolster my self-esteem and to bolster my confidence in my body's ability to heal. If I can get through that, I can get through anything. And I really had to remind myself that on a daily basis. And so I think what happened, I was reminding myself of that and it just kind of came out externally. I said it out loud. So just there's some context to that. So in case it comes across as a little weird, um, I'm not like, hey, look how great I am. It was just, I I really needed to say these things to myself so I could actually believe them. Um, All right. So without much further ado, let's uh, dive in. Oh, 
of course, I got to tell you about the next CCP. It starts May 11th. Um, I had to postpone it just because, you know, global pandemic. Um, but we are officially on for May 11th. The signups are trickling in. I'm really excited to get started with you guys. It's been a few months since I've been able to run this program. Let's dive in. This is the place to come to get all of your questions answered. I've said it before. You guys know the deal. I don't accept DMs. I cannot give health um, you know, individualized health and medical advice or nutrition advice through DMs because I don't know your health history. But when you join a group like this, um, I get to know you a little bit better and can field all those questions for you as they come up. All right. So that's that. Looking forward to hanging out with some of you guys in May. Here's the recording. Everybody, happy week three. Week three, I can't believe we're already in week three. I feel like it's just going by so quickly time. Um, typically by this point in the program or like any program, uh, halfway through and longer people like fall off. So I'm excited to see as much engagement as there is. Cause I know you guys are still with me and that's phenomenal. Hey Jen. Um, all right. So a lot to get through today. First things first, it's a holiday. So I'm home with Hattie. She's downstairs. She's got a show. She's got snacks. She's got food, she's got drink, she's got all the accoutrements she could ever possibly need or want or desire, and yet there's probably going to be some reason that she needs to bang down my office door. So if that happens, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Oh my gosh, we have a lot of live folks today, so I'm glad that you guys are here. Maybe you're on holiday as well today. Okay. Um, before I get into the, the questions, there's one thing that I want to say. Um, one of the biggest pieces of feedback I get about this particular program is that, uh, positive feedback, is that um, the, the live component and like the human Q&A, so like not only going through the program as it's laid out, but the ability to ask me questions and get responses is huge. A lot of people have said that, and I'm like, yeah, 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 that's good, okay, cool. But um, I'm in a separate program. So I'm, I signed up for another program, sort of not really related to this. And one of the benefits of the program was that you get um, moderators fielding the Facebook group answering questions. I am not a question asker. I am like, let me, well, I mean, I ask a lot of like the why questions, but I'm like, I won't ask a question publicly unless I've already researched it myself. So I don't want to put the responsibility of somebody else to give me an answer. Like I'm going to look through their content. I'm going to try to figure this out on my own. And if I can't, then I'll ask a question. So I did this and it's hard for me to ask a question. And I did. And nobody responded. It was like crickets. And there's two different moderators and I tagged both of them and nobody answered at all. And it was so uncomfortable and I was so embarrassed and like just, and I, but I also felt really not seen, not heard, not respected. I'm still confused, still don't have the answer to my question. And so like, that was a real light bulb moment for me. I was like, oh, I get it. This, um, answering questions really does provide a resource. So I wanted to address that and say that if anyone doesn't feel that way or doesn't feel supported, let me know. Um, obviously you're not working with me one-on-one, -on -one. you know, you know, you're not a, a private client in my my private practice through this program, but I do want you to feel like you have the resources that you need to move through this program. So that was the first thing that I wanted to say. Um, all right. The other thing is that uh, somebody in the group sent me a DM on Instagram in response to some of the stuff that I was posting about on so uh, um, this weekend. So if you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen some posts and some stories that I was talking about. Um, one of my podcast listeners sent me a sticker that says diet culture is a liar. And then I got another DM from somebody who has been following my account for a while and was initially turned off. She's a beach body coach and she didn't like a lot of the things that I was saying. So what she did was dove in a little bit deeper and investigated why was she having this negative reaction to what I was saying. And she realized that what she was doing professionally as a beach body coach was actually not in alignment with 
her true value system. And so she's leaving the company and she had reached out to like, thank me for that. Like, thank me for getting her outside of her comfort zone and start to think about diet culture in a different way and how she was potentially contributing to that. So I shared that along with a lot of chatter about diet culture and, and, and all of that. And so the question that came in from somebody in the group was, okay, I hear a lot about diet culture, but what about people that actually have to lose weight? And that it's such a large topic to unpack. I simply couldn't do it justice, like thumb typing into my DMs. Moreover, I don't really respond to DMs. I don't answer law like questions that require a lot of explanation i get at least 10 to 20 dms a day if i spent all of my time answering those i would like literally spend all of my time answering those so i don't answer dms it's one of the ways that i create boundaries and, res and, and, and respect my own energy um but since the person was in the CCP group, I want to address that here. And it's a really great question, and it's one that comes up quite a bit, especially when we're talking about restriction and not, um, not worrying about calories and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. So if, you have, if you're sitting there thinking the same thing, well, I actually have weight to lose, so where do I fit into this whole conversation? Um, the first thing is that diets don't work, and we have to acknowledge that. Diets do not work. It's well-studied, it's well-researched, it's well-proven. If diets work, the diet industry wouldn't be worth $67 billion. That is billion with a B, $67 billion. That's like one of those large numbers that you can't even wrap your brain around, it's so big. If diets worked, you would do a diet and then you would never need a diet again. So the, it, it wouldn't be worth that much money, right? If diets worked, you wouldn't be in this program. If diets worked, you'd be living in your ideal body right now because you do a diet, it would work, and then you wouldn't have to do a diet again. Why, why this industry is so worthy or so is worth so much is because diets don't work. So you're stuck in this vortex of trying a diet, maybe getting a little bit of success, being unable to sustain that success, and then gaining all the weight back and then feeling like a failure, and then being like, well, it's my fault that I failed. I lack willpower. I lack motivation. It's my fault because that's what diet culture trains you to believe, that you're the problem to be fixed. You're the thing that, that, needs, that needs to be worked on. It's your fault. And then we go right back into the diet industry again. So it's, it's, this, it's this cycle that we're all stuck in. Um, so that's the first thing I want to point out. Okay. The second thing is that you have to examine, do you actually have weight to lose? So if you're walking around telling yourself, I'm overweight, is that actually true? And this is something that the Hayes movement really unpacks and really works to dismantle this belief that um, the higher your BMI, the unhealthier, unhealthier you are. Now, health, uh, HAYS stands for health at every size. I am not a HAYS practitioner, so I don't spend a lot of time talking about this um, simply because I don't have the education and I, it's not my, my area of expertise. But I would highly recommend looking into it if this is at all, all interesting to you or feel, feels a little confusing. Um, you can look into the work of Lin, uh, Linda Bacon or just simply Hayes Health at Every Size and start to unpack, is it really true that fat people are unhealthy? Is that even true? Um, or is it more of the mindset that diet culture puts into our heads that keeps us unhealthy? I just saw something on Instagram this week that referred to problem areas. What the actual F, problem areas, what does that say? That says you are a problem that needs to be fixed. There's areas on your body that's a problem that needs to be fixed. And this is the whole, the whole, uh, part of diet culture that really does some some mental and emotional damage to us we're walking around in these bodies feeling like they're broken feeling like they're problems feeling like they're they're things that need to be fixed and what's the solution oh the solution is to lose weight the solution is a diet and that's actually not true so we have to continue to have this conversation so we can really see it for what it is it's a lie 
Um, I've talked a little bit about this. Um, mo many of you guys know, if you know my story, you know I struggled with eating disorders for 13 years. Now I'm not talking about being like, I feel fat. I was binging and purging up to 12 times a day for eight years. It was an absolute problem. Not many people can recover from that. Not many people can reclaim their health after that. I was lucky enough to be one of the people that, that did. And I healed from my eating disorder. I recovered from my eating disorder, but I hadn't really recovered from the diet mindset, from, from diet culture rhetoric. It was still stuck in my brain. I hated myself, right? I, I hated my body. I, I hated, I couldn't feel comfortable in my skin. Those, those feelings carried over. And is it any surprise that I ended up with an autoimmune disease? Autoimmune, so for those of you guys who don't know, I was diagnosed four or five years ago with scleroderma, pretty serious autoimmune disease, not, not great. Um, autoimmunity is, is literally self-attack. Your body turns on itself, your body starts to attack itself. Now we know that our thoughts impact our body. Our thoughts create our reality. That's not woo-woo, that's just pure science. I'm not a quantum physicist, I can't explain the science necessarily, but it's real. What we think impacts our physical body and our experience in this world. And if I was spending most of my life thinking I was a problem and thinking that I hate, you know, knowing that I hated myself and, and really being super harsh on myself in my body, is it any surprise that my body, my physical body, followed suit? My immune system started to self-attack. There's a very clear link between the two in my eyes. And I don't think it's any surprise that autoimmunity is way more common in women than in men because we really feel the brunt of, um, of diet culture. You know, remember when dad bods were a thing? How, how's that, right? Mom bods have, have never been a thing, right? But dad bods is a totally, total diff, double standard. It is harder to walk around in a female body. And then if you wanna even get deeper into it, how about marginalized people, right? People of color, um, gay people, transgender people, any segment of the population who's at all marginalized, their health is much, much lower than, um, than non-marginalized people. And that's the truth. And that's a lot of what Hayes unpacks, the Hayes movement, health at every size. We cannot talk about health without talking about socioeconomic status. We cannot talk about health without talking about all these other things. Um, and we have to ask the question, what's unhealthier? Having a high BMI or being marginalized for having a high BMI, right? What's really, really the unhealthier thing? And is carrying around extra weight really that bad? Because so many of us think that our ideal weight is something that it's actually not, right? The ideal weight in our brains might be different than what our bodies actually want to thrive. And we can blame diet culture for that. So huge, huge conversation, and I've already probably talked way longer than I needed to about it, but I wanted to address that here for the person that was DMing me because I think it's a big thing. Listen to my podcast. It's All of this talk is infused into just about every episode, but specifically look at the Hayes episodes. And also, um, I have to recommend Dr. Jillian Murphy. I interviewed her on the podcast. It was a great conversation. For those of you guys signed up for my Your Hormone Revival program, we have a masterclass with Dr. Jillian Michaels. Um, no, Dr. Jillian Murphy. I always call her Jillian Michaels. And it is a must listen. I know it's a bonus. Make yourself listen to it because it will blow your mind the way she talks about all of this stuff. Um, Okay, so that's really all I wanted to say about that. So let me cruise on over into, I'm just gonna make sure we don't have any live questions coming in, and I will address the questions that are already written down. Okay, the first question is, how do you handle the social isolation that a healthy diet can cause? I've been out to dinner the past few nights and made good choices, but I can tell waking up today that some of the bloating is back, and I think I've undone some of my progress. I want to feel good and be healthy, but I also want to socialize. How do you balance it? I want to say that two meals is not going to undo your pro progress. That's diet culture rhetoric. 
watch yourself when those thoughts come up. What we want to do is really be aware. That thing I posted last week, it's like when you start to think about food rules, ask yourself, whose voice is this? Who's putting this into your brain, right? We want to be aware of the messaging coming from diet culture because it's we can't change anything that we're not aware of. So that is a very diet culture-y, uh, perhaps disordered way of thinking that I'm going to undo progress because I went out and had a meal out at a restaurant. Hardcore not true. Now, it can be true that eating at home, especially that the way that we're all eating in the CCP and, and doing a lot of shopping and cooking, um, is most likely healthier than eating at a restaurant. Um, restaurants don't typically source their food very well. They don't sort, you know, they're not using a ton of organic produce. They're not eating, uh, using well-sourced meats. They cook with pro-inflammatory fats almost all of the time. Um, gluten cross-exposure, um, gluten exposure can be, it, it's really hard to manage that in a restaurant setting, even if it's something is labeled gluten-free. Um, I just ran the wheat zoomer on myself, which is, a test that looks at the 24 ways my immune system can respond to wheat, expecting it to be totally in the clear because I've been on a gluten-free diet for 10 years, so my body really shouldn't have a chance to mount antibodies, but there were some things that popped up, and it's because of cross-exposure, uh, cross-contamination. So yeah, eating at home is going to generally be a safer, healthier bet. That's if we're looking at health as just the food that we eat. But really, overall health and well-being is a much bigger, a much bigger picture. Food is one piece of the overall health pie. It's just one piece. Diet culture would have us believe that that and exercise is like the whole enchilada, mixing my food metaphors here. Um, but it's, it's just one piece. Another really, really, really important aspect to health is socialization, is community. It's feeling like you're part of something and getting that through friendships and socialization is really, really important. Um, there have been studies done on, uh, people who feel isolated versus people who feel like part of a community. 100% of the time, those people that feel like they're part of communities are have overall better physical health and better life expectancy. So it's a huge thing not to be overlooked. Um, so it's a tricky thing to balance. What I generally say is that, um, you know, is it the food or is it the alcohol? Because sometimes when you're going out, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what the case is here, so I'm not pinpointing anybody. I'm just talking generally. But um, alcohol can be very, very disruptive to the gut, to your liver, obviously, and also to your sleep and to your hormones. Um, four alcoholic drinks a night can cause estrogen dominance. That's, or I mean, four alcoholic drinks a week. I'm sorry, not a night, a week. I mean, there's a lot of people doing doing that it can cause estrogen dominance. Like I said, uh, it's it's hard on the gut. So it's a direct irritant of the gut. It can be pretty tricky to um, to overcome certain gut dysfunctions, like a SIBO or um, any other dysbiosis if you're drinking regularly. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to not drink. So I just want to make sure we're we're differentiating between the two because if you're you, you know you're taking some pops while you're out at, at dinner, we can't just blame the food. We can't ju just hyper-focus on the food. Um, but what I, the way that I do it is I, eat out, I, I don't eat out that often, maybe a couple of times a month, um, but I always look at the menu of where I'm going. Um, and I always make sure there's food there that I can eat. And if there's not, I will say that to my friends. And guess what? My friends are my people. So they get it and they're cool. Like I'm not going to meet them out at like an Applebee's where I can literally eat nothing on the menu, but like, Hey, let's go to this place where I know that there's food that I can eat. That doesn't feel disordered to me. That that's just me taking care of myself and my friends are like totally down. So I think there's ways around it where you can go and still have that socialization piece that's so important. Being honest with yourself, how much booze is part of the social socialization because alcohol is very, very normalized. Alcohol consumption is hugely normalized in our society. So we don't think it's a problem. And I'm not talking about addiction. I'm just talking about like casual drinking, right? We don't see it as a problem because everybody's doing it. So really be honest with yourself there. How, are you feeling 
bloated because you might have eaten some off foods or are you feeling bloated because maybe you had some some drinks with your meal um and then the other thing that i would recommend if you have gluten sensitivity which hey one out of seven of us does uh, pack your gluten enzymes um or, or buy gluten enzymes i always keep some in my purse and i will take those 100 percent of the times that i eat out um, in order to safeguard against cross-contamination you don't take gluten enzymes and then eat a pizza or a plate of pasta you take gluten enzymes order gluten free but it's just kind of like protecting you against that that cross-contamination so those are kind of my um, I feel like I could do a whole podcast episode on this, and I probably should, but those are my general um, thoughts around it. And the other thing is, too, like, I always put my health on a, at a premium, and I think it takes, it might take getting really sick uh, for some of us to do that. Unfortunately, it's just the way that it works. You know, like, you don't prioritize health until you have had your health stolen from you um, sometimes. And so I'm very unapologetic about taking care of myself, and I'm okay with inconveniencing other people in order to take care of myself that is just a non-negotiable for me i'm like i'm not going or if i'm going to meet out with somebody where i know like the food's going to be weird i'm going to eat my own food and then meet out with them and get that socialization aspect um okay next question what are your favorite probiotic fiber and multi prenatal vitamin supplement brands um, I'm using the program to help balance blood sugar and help heal my gut. I am an IBS with constipation gal with GERD and history of peptic ulcer, ulcers. Those supplements have been recommended by my doctors, but I want to make sure I'm making the best supplement choices. Thanks. Um, she goes on to say, oh, somebody else goes on to say, I have difficulty with GERD, but I've noticed an improvement since beginning the program. I've had no grains, beans, gluten, or dairy. Um, okay, there's just some some interpersonal communication going on, which I love. You guys are such a great group, like helping each other out. I love that. So as far as different brands go, um, because I run a clinical practice, I use practitioner line supplements, which aren't always easy to buy unless you're accessing them through a practitioner. And you know, I've been in the game for a while, so I have certain products that I use for certain situations. So I don't have like one brand allegiance or like affiliation where I'm like use this this is definitely it I really take it case by case so I have a much harder time recommending specific supplements um, for multi I really like uh, pure encapsulation one that's one of my favorite multis for a prenatal um, I like innate response um, there's a few different ones out there that one seems to be pretty good uh, for probiotics, I'm all over the map. Custom probiotics is one of the ones that I use most often clinically. Um, you have to order directly through their website. And then I kind of spot treat with different, uh, different strains of probiotics um, for the different situations. And then for fibers, really basically everything that I... Um, Everything that we talked about, I don't know if you watched the gut video, uh, but I talked about a lot of different prebiotic fibers that I really, really like, like specific ones that I threw some links in. So those tend to be my favorite products. Um, so I would go back in and re-reference that. But I don't have, I use a lot of Apex Energetics products. Um, I like their products a lot. They are practitioner lines, so you have to order them through somebody. All everything that I use clinically is available in my online dispensary. So if you just kind of wanted to like wheel around that, um, I gave you guys the coupon code to save five dollars. Um, it's either five dollars or free shipping, or five dollars and free shipping. Anyway, um, that would be something to look at. If you haven't listened to my constipation uh, episode yet on my podcast, go listen to that when I talk about slow motility and constipation and really give like a lot of clinical resources for that as well. Um, I would say, and I'm sure you've already done this, but if you have history of peptic ulcers um, and GERD, make sure you get tested for H. pylori. Uh, that is really, really important to do. Um, they can do breath tests at your gastroenterologist's office. Um, it's also one of the things that I, I uh, screen for on a GI map stool test. So I would I would get that checked out if you haven't already. You don't want to let H. pylori go unchecked because it can cause it can cause long term serious complications. Okay, 
when next question when i was at the gym today i was thinking hmm what's that smell well turned out that it was me does our body chemistry change enough to affect our bo and if not why am i stinky so this is a question that i've gotten like here and there throughout the years that i haven't been really able to nail down an answer so my annoying answer is like i'm not really sure um certainly through hormonal changes your body can kick off different smells um, there might be some like detoxification, a detox component. Um, it could be based on what you're eating. If you're eating a lot of sulfur-rich veggies, that could potentially change the, the smell of your sweat. But I don't really have like an amazing response for that. Sorry. Okay. Next question. Does something change in your body when you're transitioning from using carbs for fuel to fat for fuel? I've been feeling great for the most part, but still figuring out what I need for meal sizes. I have been getting hangry in the afternoon. Could my body just be adjusting still? So yes, there are, when you're <clears throat> switching over from using glucose as your primary fuel source, which most of us are, to fat as your primary fuel source, there are certain enzymatic processes that need to happen. Now, is that happening right now? Maybe. This is really more so when you're moving in towards a ketogenic diet and getting your body into ketosis and kind of like running off of ketones. That's usually, um, that's usually when those, those big changes happen. And at week three, most of us aren't going to be low enough carb yet to get into ketosis. So I can't really say that that's exactly what's going on here. Um, but Knowing a little bit about your background, hang on, I'm going to start coughing, so I'm going to take a sip of water. And knowing that you're coming from a low-fat, higher-carbohydrate diet, there could be an adjustment period. And I would just say, make sure that you're not, because there's that fat fear that you have that you carried into this program, make sure that you're not inadvertently under-eating fat, because what we're doing is dropping carbohydrates low, especially week three, we're getting even lower, right? Um, and if your fat isn't, your fat and your protein aren't in an elevated enough place, what can, what can happen is that you're just under-eating, right? You're not eating enough calories, and when you have, when you're low-calorie and low-carb, this is a really... Um, not a great place for you to be from an adrenal perspective, from a thyroid perspective, from overall hormone perspective. So I would say just maybe, um, I know that you are a little hesitant to do this, but maybe what you can do is just log your food for a day, throw those, you know, throw that into an online calculator and see where you are. Because if you're under eating calories, yeah, you're totally going to be hangry in the afternoon. So it could be maybe your lunch isn't big enough or, or it could be you just need a snack in the afternoon and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, sometimes we're just hungrier. So if you keep getting hangry, make sure your lunch meal is big enough, but also make sure that you're fueling yourself adequately and you just might need an afternoon snack. And that's totally cool, too. Um, is yogurt still okay in week three? Yes, I uh, yes. Um, depending on if there's any additives in it. Um, you want higher fat, higher protein. So like a Koyo yogurt would be great because it's it's super high in fat, lower in um, lower in carbohydrates. But just make sure that it's not um, there's no sugars or sweeteners added to it. Okay, next question. I'm looking at the recipes in week three and notice noticing a few do not include foods. Um, are there good substitutions for those, especially in dressings or when needed to balance acidity? Okay, great, great, great question. You have to use some common sense. So most of this is like structured program, like just follow the program, you're good. But also like think about things in context. This is not a Whole30. And I don't think there's anything wrong with Whole30s. Um, some people do really well with them, but some people fall into the, 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 the rules, right? Like the, I cannot eat this, right? I cannot have this, this ketchup because there's added sugars to it. I can't, we get more, it, more into the rules. And what I'm trying to do is like break that pattern in so many of our brains. This is not a, a yes, no. I mean, there's definitely foods that we're eliminating as we move through, like higher sugar um, foods as we move through. 
But um, think about like how much you'd actually be consuming, right? It's not like you're going to be you know, having like a quarter cup of maple syrup in something. It's a very, very small amount because the recipes make a lot and it's a, it's a pretty darn small amount. So for the most part, I'm really not concerned or else I wouldn't have put those recipes in. Now, um, if you are using this program to get into ketosis for a therapeutic purposes, then you do want to actually leave those out. So let's say you've been having some neurological symptoms and you really want to see if if fueling your body on ketones will make a difference for you, then yes, leave those foods out, absolutely. But for the most part, it's not going to make or break your experience in this program, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. So I'd be like, I guess my uh, takeaway there is don't, don't overthink it. Next question, can you recommend a brand of canned salmon? Um... Now I'm drawing a blank. So I really like, I, um, the Trader Joe's has wild sockeye canned salmon that I really like. They have the skin on and the bones in, which is really, really good for the nutrient density. So it is wild caught, first of all, so you always want to look for wild caught. The bones are very soft, so you can mash them right up. And the skin and the bones contain vitamin D, magnesium, calcium, um, minerals that we need um, and we hear all about. And then the skin is where we get those healthy fatty acids, those omega-3 fatty acids that we all know and love. So if you mash them all up together, it's like, it just feels like you're eating, you know, like canned tuna, right? It all kind of mashes up into the same thing. So I really like those and the cans tend to be on uh, the bigger side too. Um, I don't know why I said that, like it's a bonus. Okay. You can have more raspberries. My, I have a little friend that came in to visit. You can have more raspberries, okay? And there's macadamia nuts in there too. Those those white nuts that you really like, okay? Um, working mom. Okay, so that uh, that's one. And then there's uh, Safe Catch is another really good brand in terms of uh, sustainability. And then there's one more that I cannot think of that I will have to post because I just, it's right, it just flew completely out of my head and for some reason I didn't write it down. Um, okay, next question. Is swallowing air a thing when eating? I find often I get bloated soon after I start eating. I've been trying to be more mindful about chewing adequately and relaxing my body when I sit down to eat, but I'm finding that I still bloat up early on in my meal times. Weird. So swallowing air totally is a thing. And when you're eating super fast, you can tend to swallow more air. Sure, that can absolutely bloat you. Um, drinking uh, seltzers and carbonated beverages can also do the same thing. Um, if you're finding that you're consistently bloated despite, despite slowing down and despite changing your diet, there might be an underlying, underlying reason for that bloating. Can swallowing air contribute to bloating? Absolutely, without a doubt, um, but so can dysbiosis. So if you've moved some things around to try to address the bloating dietarily, lifestyle-wise, and it's still not getting better, you might want to do a deeper dive at the end of this program to see if there's something like a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that's contributing to your bloating picture. But to answer that question really straightforwardly, yeah, it's, it's a thing, um, for sure. Okay, next question. I've been increasing my seeds and nuts intake since I started the program. Is there a limit on how many nuts and seeds could end up being too much? Also, do you always soak your nuts? How do you dry them in the oven? Thanks. Um, well, nuts and seeds are very nutrient-dense and very calorically dense. So it can, for some people, be easy to overeat them, to overconsume them. Um, and inadvertently eat, overeat calories. I know we've been talking a lot about under-eating calories, right? But there is, there is a caloric range that, we, that many of us fall into. And so I think it can be easy to overdo that for some, some people. And so what I generally say is that like your diet is like locked in, right? If you've been doing CCP and you've been like humming along and things are great and you feel great and you're at a point where maybe your body might be ready to lose weight, if that's a goal for you, 
Um, what I have people do is take a look at their nut and seed intake and like, is it super, super high? Because like, you know, nut butters, you can like throw a ton into a smoothie. You could like eat some off of a spoon. I, um, you know, I had a client I remember who was like just mindlessly eating nut butter like off of a spoon and was like getting like up to a cup a day, which is a lot of nuts. You know, if you took that like whole, all of those nuts that like are, are, um, blended down into nut butter, that would be like a lot of nuts a day. So that would be the, the only reason that I would say sort of be mindful of your intake. Um, and then I don't always soak my nuts. I, tr I do my best. I recently did a lectin zoomer. So it's the same company that, that does the wheat zoomer that I was just talking about. And it looks at my uh, immune reaction to lectins because with somebody with a rheumatic autoimmune disease, we can have more issues with lectins. And I'm totally in the clear, with the exception of chickpeas, which is very sad because bands of pasta is everything. Um, but I don't really react to lectins. So I'm not overly concerned with it. Yes, there's phytic acid in the nuts. I, this is the way that I approach it. When I think about it, I do it, but I don't hyper-focus on it either. I do, like, I, I do, I would say like half the time I do. Um, you do get more nutrition. So if people are like soaking nuts, what the hell? You limit those anti-nutrients um, and you make the nutrition within the nuts more bioavailable to your body. So they're easier to digest and they're more, you, they offer up more nutrition to your body when you soak and sprout and dehydrate your nuts. Um, I, yes, I do it in the oven. I put it on the lowest setting. I used to have a dehydrator back in my raw food days, uh, but I got rid of it because... It's just like one more piece of equipment, but I, I would just do them in the oven on the lowest setting for like 12 hours. That's how I approached it. Um, and then there was a follow-up question in terms of diverticulitis, and you guys kind of like work this out yourselves, but yeah, you're totally right in that that's kind of like old school belief um, uh, that if you have diverticulitis or you've had an attack before that you should avoid nuts and seeds. Not really true. Um, there's just not any evidence to support that. So it would be a real bummer to like not eat the foods that you enjoy because you're afraid that it's going to harm your body. I would say since there's two of you in the group that have had diverticulitis or diverticulosis um, in the past, I would say the biggest thing to be mindful of is your motility. So if you have slow motility and constipation, that can put you at a greater risk. So just make sure that your bowels are moving regularly and you're doing everything to support that. Um, sometimes dropping your carbohydrates too low can trigger constipation and low motility. So you want to be mindful of that as well. Um, <laughs> Okay, yes, I know, it is a pain to soak all the time. I mean, in an ideal world, I would be doing that. Honestly, when I worked less and I was home more with Hattie, I was doing it a lot more, and now that you know, I just don't have as much time available to me, I don't do it as much, and that is just the God's honest truth. And um, I think if we had more severe digestive issues in our house than we do, I would be a little bit more like Johnny on the spot about doing that sort of stuff. Um, what's your take on tapioca starch? I know it's probably not too low in carbs, but is it considered healthy, whole food? Also, what about arrowroot starch? Yeah, I, they're, I consider them both relatively whole food sources of starch and a pretty good replacement for, um, for, for, for gluten flours. And I really like to rotate out the flour. So when you're replacing you know, we, what we can do is kind of like fall into the trap, like where now everything is almond or everything is coconut. And that can actually put you more at a predisposal to more food sensitivities. So the more variety you get, the better. On top of that, if you think about it, almonds have those, um, those omega-6, any nuts and seeds have a lot of those omega-6 oils, which aren't bad. They're not bad. We just, you know, we want, we want to have everything in a ratio when it comes to uh, fatty acids. But omega, we know that omega-6 fatty acids degrade really easily and can go off when they're exposed to light, air, or heat. So if we're doing a lot of baking with almond flour in like only almond flour, that might not be the best thing to bake with because we're just continuing to heat those omega-6 oils. Hopefully you're, you're kind of like picking up what I'm putting down. So it's not that I won't 
uh, bake with almond flour. It's just not the only flour that I use. And I don't, I wouldn't bake like every single day with almond flour. It's like a once in a while type of, um, type of flour for me. Um, I really like to rotate out all the different other types of gluten-free flours for that exact reason. Okay. So yeah, short answer. Yes. I think those are, can be considered good, healthy, whole food, uh, foods. Not, not low carb because they're starches, so they're going to be higher carb, but just keep that in mind. Next question, how does everyone organize all of the powders, nuts, and seeds? And yes, this is exactly what I do. I save all of my glass jars and I use those. I have a lot of mason jars. Um, I personally really like the way it looks, having like all the different things in the mason jars. There's just like something about it that brings me some joy. Um, I don't have a label maker, but that's next level, and now I'm jealous, and now I want a label maker to label everything. Um, I love that idea. But yeah, you know, like think about all the stuff like mayonnaise and ghee and all that stuff that you're buying in those glass jars. I love to save them. They come in so, so handy. So um, that's usually what I use because I also, you know, locally go to the mustard seed and I get a lot of dried mixed teas and herbs and stuff like that. So I have glass jars going all over the place. Okay, the next question is about weight loss. The first week I lost over five pounds. The second week I only maintained. Is it too soon to start worrying why I did not lose? Should I give it another week? Or is now the time to start evaluating things? I haven't been looking at calories at all because I'm pretty sure that not eating enough calories has never been a problem for me, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, and then somebody else chimed in saying, first week they were down and then didn't lose weight the second week. I'm going to answer your question, but I'm first going to say, how often are you weighing yourself? Because it's only week three. It's day one of week three. So we've been doing this for two weeks. You've already weighed yourself in those two weeks. That is arguably too much to weigh yourself. Um, I think that weighing yourself regularly creates a lot of unnecessary stress. So what I would say is don't weigh yourself to the end of the program. Like don't even look at a scale. And as Somebody who's been in clinical practice and been doing this for 10 years, I will say, you know, at knowing all that I know, I never look at somebody's weight in pounds as a one of the top um, biomarkers of health. Like literally never. Like how much do you weigh is almost like a never even a question that I ask. Because there's so many other things that I put on way higher of a pedestal. How's your energy? How do you feel? Um, do you have the ability to get up and work out? Do you have the ability and motivation to move your body? How's your digestion? How's your sleep? Are you sleeping eight hours a night? There's just so many other parameters of health um, that weight loss is kind of like really down on my list. now. I hate to break this to you, but losing five pounds the first week, you probably didn't lose five pounds of fat. Uh, probably some of that was that water, like that whoosh, um, by dropping carbohydrates, like you let go of water. Some of it absolutely could have been fat mass, not, not all five pounds. Typically, like a safe and healthy weight loss range is like a pound to maybe two pounds per week, two pounds being on the higher side of that. If you lose weight quicker than that, you're usually losing muscle mass as well. And we don't want to do that. Muscle mass is really, really hard to earn, first of all. Like you really earn that muscle mass. Second of all, it's most metabolically active. So the more muscle mass you have on your body, the more it's going to rev up your metabolism, the more calories you're going to burn at rest. So we want to keep that muscle, if weight loss is a goal, we want to maintain muscle mass or even put on muscle mass, and then we want to fat mass to decrease. That would be like the, the ultimate goal. And if you lose weight too quickly, you're not, you know, you're losing some of that muscle mass, which totally sticks because then your metabolism slows and you, it's just like a whole mess. So um, I would say that the slower the weight loss, usually the more sustainable it is. So I wouldn't set your goal as like, let's lose a ton of weight uh, right out of the gate. Um, and I don't think that's weird for your body to dump some weight in the beginning and then kind of like maintain and recalibrate. Um, I would see where you net out at the end of the program and look more at body composition, like 
how do your pants fit um, versus like what's the number on the scale because that number on the scale changes it fluctuates quite significantly um, so don't let that be like your benchmark for success on this program I would also look at the other factors that I was talking about as well um, I, I so is it too soon to start worrying why I did not lose? Yes, too soon. Should I give it another week? Yes, totally. Or is now the time to start evaluating things? I'd say not quite yet. Um, we're dropping carbohydrates lower this week. See how you do with that. Um, last question. Can sugar, or maybe it's not the last question. Can sugar cause bloating? Oh my God, totally, 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 totally. Some people, no, not at all. Some people, yes. Sugar uh, feeds the dysbiotic bacteria, so like the bad guys. Um, so if you have, and, and those bacteria ferment sugar. So if you have any dysbiosis, if you have too many bad guys, or if you have translocated bacteria, so instead of being in the large intestine, they're sitting up in the small intestine and they're fermenting sugars, it's going to create a significant amount of bloating because it's, as it ferments the foods, it pr produces gas, and that gas is what can cause the bloating. So yes, sugar is a big one um, for people in terms of bloating, absolutely. Inflammatory foods, can they cause immediate inflammation pain? Um, my joints and my hands randomly ache. I've removed gluten from my diet. Could it be something else? Yeah, it could be. Um, it could be. I would think, I was just talking about lectins, so I would uh, think a little bit about lectins. And uh, so lectins are sticky proteins that are pretty inflammatory. They're found in, uh, the, the first thing I have people, they're, they're found very much so in meat. They're also found in nightshade veggies. So um, white potatoes, uh, bell peppers, any type of peppers, any spices made with peppers, um, eggplant and tomatoes. Those are pretty high in lectins, so you could remove those and see if that got any better. If it did, it could be an indication that you're, that you're responding and reacting to the lectins. Um, and that can be a pretty immediate reaction for some people. So that's one of those things that's a little bit tricky to nail down, but I think that is generally a good place to start, especially if you're experiencing that joint pain. And then I, one more thing that I wanted to say, um, back to the weight loss question, I do have an episode on my podcast all about weight loss. Um, so I would go to that, and that's really like walking you through the steps of, hey, is now a good time to lose weight? Like how to evaluate that? And also, if it is, here's a really good way to attempt it. Obviously, we're doing some food stuff here, but it's more of like, these are the things that you want to do outside of food to think about. So I would, I would go back to, I would refer back to that. Oh, one more question. Um, can you re recommend some of your favorite teas? Do you mean brands of tea or do you mean like, um, I don't know, like different herbs? I'll talk about both. In terms of brands, I really like traditional medicinals and I like Yogi just because they're organic. It's really, really important to buy teas organic. Um, Peak tea, the it's spelled P-I-Q-U-E, is a phenomenal company because not only are they organic, but they also test for heavy metals, which is a pretty big deal. Um, anything grown on the ground is going to um, soak up anything in the soil, and some soil have a lot of um, heavy metals or fluoride, um, things like that. And so that particular company uh, tests for all of that, and not many companies do. It's definitely expensive. Like, you're paying a premium for that testing. So that's one thing to think about. Okay, like loose ones. Oh, my goodness. You know what I usually do is – I. Locally, we have a place called the mustard seed, but any type of um, like apothecary or um, place that, that carries loose bulk tea or like loose bulk herbs will also have tea blends. So I kind of usually just buy like the, the pre-blended ones because I'm not an herbalist, so I don't really get that, that crafty. Um, I love dandelion root tea just for uh, bile health and liver health. Um, Rubios never know if I'm saying that right, is a really good one. Um, you know what I'll do is I will go downstairs 
and I will take pictures of some of my tea blends because I take the, the sticker that from the store and I put it on the, the jar and it breaks down all of the different herbs in it. So I'll take pictures of it so you can actually see because I'm kind of all over the place. That's another area that I'm like, the most variety, the better. I mean, it's kind of hard to get that much variety in modern day, especially if you shop at the grocery store, right? There's like not that much variety, but getting variety through herbs, spices, and loose, loose, loose leaf tea is a really good way to expose yourself to different types of um, plants. And so I just kind of like rotate them out a lot. So I'll find, I'll find some of my favorites and take a picture and post them here. Um, oh yeah, Mountain Rose Herbs is another great company that you can um, that you can order. I think they do a really really good job. So that's a that's another great option. Oh my gosh. Okay, I knew this was gonna be a long one. Fifty minutes. Thanks you guys for hanging in. Um, any other questions? I'll just hang out for a couple more minutes for those of you guys that are live here. But hopefully I I um, I answered everything. I have to just say, this is such an amazing group. You guys are just, I don't know, you're just like bringing the heat. You're like so many questions, so much engagement. It's awesome. I really hope that you're getting um, getting a lot from the program because the questions are like bang on. And I, I love questions. I love, I could, obviously I'm here for 15 minutes just like chatting. chatting so I love to answer the questions as they come up. Um, all right, you guys, have a wonderful week. And I will see you next Monday to answer all of your questions for week four. And again, just be aware that week three, we're on the second half. So this is when people start to fade out. So just like catch yourself if you feel like you just like go off the rails one day. It's not a big deal. Just come back, come back on, come back in, right? Oh, did you, did you? We have a little pal. You wanna say hi? Hi. All right, you guys, happy Monday. Be well. I will um, see you all soon.